Chapters six through ten of Laugh and Live by Douglas Fairbanks. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter six Building Up a Personality. More and more, personality is coming into its own as man's greatest asset. There was never a day when it was not, but in former years this essential quality was not listed under the name personality. Had we lived in the days of our father's youth we would have heard about remarkable men, men of big caliber, large character, splendid presence, and the like. But it remained for our day and generation to discover the real word, personality, meaning the most perfect combination possible of man's highest attributes. At least that would be the definition in its fullest sense. Of course everyone has a certain personality, and, no matter in what degree, its possession is valuable. Personality is an acorn, so to speak, which may be cultivated into a sturdy oak. Personality is one's inner self outwardly expressed. It represents the conquest of our weaknesses and naturally impresses our strength of character upon others. With personality our foundation is firm. On this pedestal we may stand squarely and face life with equanimity, for such there is no end to achievement while good health and youthful spirit remain. It is impossible to come into the presence of a personality without becoming immediately aware of it. It is reflected by people of small stature, poor physiques, homely visages, as well as men of the highest physical development. The great Napoleon was just above five feet while Lincoln towered over the six-foot line. Men of personality are the last to say die. Their store of combativeness carries them beyond their real span of existence either in years or achievement. Thus the mind shows its mastery over matter. Alexander Pope was still writing while propped up upon the pillows of his deathbed. Mark Twain joked with friends when he knew his hour was at hand. Personality is magnetic. It can charm the friend or put fear into the heart of the enemy. Joan of Arc, a frail woman, won battles at the head of her troops. History is filled with incidents where men of personality have turned defeat into victory by leading their soldiers back into the fray. Wholesome personality is the fulfillment of self-development, physically, mentally, and spiritually. But all personality is not wholesome, for it often shows in the face of a man who is a rogue at heart. Therefore all personality is not for the good of the world. It is only of the wholesome kind that we speak. To such as possess it the goal is divine. Personality could never be perfected without living a life of preparedness backed up by our most earnest and honest convictions. Personality is made up of many qualities and differs in man only as man is different from his brother man. Perfect personality requires constant care in its development and constant guard for its safety. It cannot be purchased in the open market. It must be built upon piece by piece, and everything we are becomes a part of it. Personality would be indeed imperfect if it did not give us full poise. If we neglect our physical poise, we pull down our mental poise, likewise our spiritual poise. That is why personality must be kept constantly protected against encroachment, 
but this can be so fixed by purpose, plan, and power of will that it becomes automatically safeguarded. Once in possession we have only to make it part of our natural selves and wear it unconsciously to the last breath of life. Then the question is, why should we allow ourselves to be satisfied with an imperfect personality? It only reflects back upon ourselves. Haven't we often heard a man say, he is all right, but perhaps the personality in question was untidy, or that his walk was that of a laggard, or that he affected an egotistical air of superiority, whatever the impairment, it should have been done away with. A man of personality should never be haunted with worry from the sneers of his inferiors because of their own laxity. Some men perfect their manner of speech to a degree which takes it above that of their weaker fellows. Others develop fine qualities which are viewed by ordinary individuals as affectations but which are, in reality, the result of innate refinement. The man of no refinement has indeed an uphill fight, but with persistence and ambition to succeed he can win. Lincoln, the rail-splitter, is the most shining example of the power to will victory. For him to have fallen by the wayside would have caused no comment, for it would have been expected in those early days of struggle, but to those who have the benefit of inherited tendencies toward personality to fail in its development is in the nature of a crime. Personality does not mean over-refinement. Sturdy qualities are the necessary ones. Over-refinement leads to the softer life and oft-times to degeneracy. Exalted ego is an indication of degeneracy and may have been inherited. Of those things we inherit that are good we must hold, and everlastingly must we watch those which are bad. It is never wise to wander far away from basic principles into preachment. What we need is guidance along the road to the goal of personality. First of all we need health, and second the will to do. Next we must use these weapons in the right direction, for personality is at its zenith when backed up by strong physique and brain power. From previous chapters we have learned that success of any kind is predicated upon keeping ourselves in trim and in good humor. Keeping in trim is no trick at all. We can make it a part of every physical action, and as keeping in trim means perfection of body and soundness of mind, we should never neglect to utilize any effort that will help us toward bodily efficiency. There is exercise in stooping over to pick up a pin if we will go about it in the right way. We can correct an ill-formed body by adopting and maintaining a certain carriage. We may hold our chin in such a way as to provide against stooped shoulders. We have opportunities both morning and evening to indulge in various forms of light, systematic exercises which will push forward the day's work with zest and vim. Poise has everything to do with personality. Therefore the physical structure must come in for its share of proper attention. No man of refined personality would walk the streets with a soiled face or uncombed hair. Such things do not give poise. They are the evidences of a laggard spirit. The more we exercise, the more energetic we become, the surer we are of ourselves, the farther we get in the development of our personality. End of chapter 6 Chapter 7 Honesty the character builder. 
Just as the straight line is the shortest distance between two points, so is honesty the only proper attitude of one person toward another. Without it there is no understanding possible. It must always remain supreme as a quality without which character becomes a sham, a superficial thing that has no basis in fact. The ability to look the other fellow in the eye is as necessary to character as the foundation is to a house. It comes out of that great within which we are now exploring. It arises from the courageous facing of our weaknesses and becomes a part of the man who knows himself and laughs with life at the mere joy of living, doing, accomplishing, winning against all odds. Honesty accompanies a proper self-esteem, and its cultivation should become a part of our earliest education. It doesn't grow anywhere except within ourselves and will never be handed to us on a silver platter. If we fail to find it when we are young it will have small chance of obtaining a grip on us later. It is the one quality with which to crown our highest attributes. It is final proof that we are capable of just thought and square dealing, and is proof positive that we are part and parcel of the wholesome spirit which rules the universe. Its possession is greater than riches, for its dividend is happiness and contentment, and we cannot go wrong if we so live that we can look any man in the eye and tell him the truth. To live in the full sense means to be alert. Whatever high moral plane we shall achieve must be held against all temptation. There is no compromise. Self-deceit is nothing less than self-stultification. We only fool ourselves and soon find ourselves slipping downhill. It will be hard climbing getting back and what of the wear and tear on our ambitions meanwhile? Honesty doesn't grow naturally out of a dull, uninspired life. It goes with the energetic, the forceful. The dull soul who is content to plod along year after year in the same rut may be honest, and this one redeeming feature may be of such inestimable value to him that it sweetens and softens his entire days. It will bring him friends true blue friends who will excuse all other shortcomings because of his honesty. It gives him the unadulterated trust of his employer, and it arouses a certain admiration among his narrow circle of acquaintances. If this is true with the dullard, the weakling, then what must it mean when possessed by the great? We know, for instance, how the nation instinctively turned to General Washington when it came to choosing their president after the Revolutionary War. He may have been gifted, he may have been one of the world's greatest captains, but the one quality which endeared him to his countrymen was a tremendous moral superiority. He never told a lie rang around the world. Summed up, his virtues amounted to those five words. Some statesmen may have been more astute, but Washington was honest. He never told a lie. The people knew they could trust this man, so they elected him to fill the highest place within their gift. Honesty within ourselves is the first thing to remember. Unless we are, it will be impossible for us to enter into that spiritual contentment enjoyed by those who are honest with themselves. If we are untrue to ourselves, how can we be true to others? The framework of a man's moral being must be that of honesty. 
it must become his very nature and become automatic in its processes. It belongs to the healthy, those who keep themselves well through vigorous exercise and temperate living. It is not a quality set aside for the lucky few. Every man, woman, and child possesses it in some degree, and only its constant neglect trims it to a minimum. It is one of those fundamentals of life, one of those powerful and moving forces that rule society. We are either honest or we are not. We cannot be nearly honest and get away with it. When one stops to consider honesty, even for a moment, its full importance is realized. For example, imagine having a dishonest friend. Could we go to him with the secrets of our heart? Could we trust him? Would we trust anyone who might turn traitor? Again, suppose we were untrue to ourselves and the fact became known. Could we blame others if they passed us up as a companion? Never in a thousand years. We must sleep in the beds we prepare for ourselves. Men have grown accustomed through the years to certain standards. These are now the moral laws which control and guide the destinies of entire races, whole generations. There must have been a good reason for these laws, or they could never have come into being. Society does not adopt many unnecessary rules, but among the vital laws honesty stands out in bold relief. It has become deeply embedded in the minds of mankind that everyone must be true to himself. It is taken for granted that those who are not would naturally be false to everybody. The reason for this lies in the fact that society will not proceed with any course of action without being able to trust its members. The general in charge of an army would have a hard time of it if he were unable to place faith in the subordinate to whom he gave instructions that might lead to a crisis in the battle. Society would dash itself upon the rocks were it not conscious that certain people are courageously honest, and in these it finds its leaders. To rise in life means that our fellow man believes in us and wishes us to do so. Without his cooperation it would be futile to arouse our own ambitions. We could not hope to win a victory all alone and against the great majority who believe in certain standards and conditions. We might fool ourselves into thinking that, because of some stroke of fortune, we had established an immunity for ourselves, but some day our consciences would tell us how feebly we had succeeded. There is only one method, only one way. Rise through honesty and an optimistic belief in self. And let us not plume ourselves because of our virtue. Personal honesty is our due to ourselves and our fellow man. One of the distinctive elements in the honest man's makeup is that of laughter. The ones who live up to their ideals do not feel that life is such a dark place after all. It may mean hard work, little play, and often delayed rewards, but the fact that there is a world and that it is filled with other honest souls is reward enough to give us courage to laugh as we go along. We can always afford to laugh when we're honest. The man who is innately honest has no reason to fear the snares of fortune. He knows that he can win the trust of men. He knows that he already has it. He has no dread of looking into the other fellow's eye. He knows where he stands in life. He has won that which he has through struggle, and he does not intend to lose it. 
he does not intend to fail. He cannot fail. He cannot lose. No matter how things might go at this moment or that, the next will find him on the rising tide of new opportunities, new chances. His reputation travels before him like the advance agent. His coming is heralded, and he is welcomed into any community. It isn't as though there were only a few honest men. This welcome, this glad hand, is always extended by society to the honest man as a token of approval. The world's work is a tremendous matter. There is always room for another worker to handle some part of it. And only the true, the sincere, are capable of doing this in the proper way. The leaders of society in the broader sense are those who win the faith of the average man. We look up to Lincoln because we know that he was the one man in a million to accomplish the greatest task ever set before a human being. We realize that he was honest, honest in the huge sense so necessary to the accomplishment of big ideals, and we know that in order to win some part of that great trust we must obey the standards of honesty and decency that lie below the surface and only need to be called to life and action in order to be used and laughter will arouse that sense as quickly as anything else. The man who is capable of laughing heartily is not apt to be the one who carries some conscience-stricken thought around with him. It's the easiest thing in the world to detect an untrue laugh. The real laugh springs out of the depths of being and comes with a ringing sense of security and faith in oneself. It goes with the workman in the early morning when he swings along the road to the factory it accompanies the soldier into battle. It arouses the clerk from lethargy. It brightens the sick room. It raises us all to unexplored heights, and as evidence of our state of mind it can mean only one thing, honesty and sincerity. No character can exist without this outward exhibition of an inward honesty. The mere cultivation of laughter would eventually lead to honesty. The fact that you are laughing, enjoying life, awakens you to a spirit of security and a feeling of the joy of living. Gloomy men are the ones whose tendency is toward crime and trouble. Laughing men are the ones who stir the world with new desires and make life worth living. Therefore we say, laugh and live. End of chapter 7 Chapter 8 Cleanliness of Body and Mind if we interview many of life's failures we will find that the overwhelming majority went down because of their neglect to get out of an environment that was not stimulating and because their ambitions had grown rusty and inefficient to cope with depressing circumstances. The prisons and other institutions are filled with people who did not make any attempt to get away from the vicious surroundings in which they lived. They were like tadpoles that had never grown to frogs. They just kept swimming around in their muddy puddles, and, not having grown legs with which they could leap out onto the banks and away to other climes, they continued to swim in monotonous circles until they died. In other words, the failure is a man who dwells in muddy atmosphere all his days, who is content to remain a tadpole, and who never attempts to take advantage of any opportunity. He becomes unclean, so to speak and that is what we mean by this chapter heading, Cleanliness of Body and Mind. 
It was not intended to point out the proper way to keep our faces and hands clean, or as a sermon, but rather to show ourselves that the clean body begets the clean mind, the two together constituting compelling tendencies toward the clean spirit. A move in the direction of these takes us out of the rut of life. No matter what cause we dig up with which to explain our success in life, we cannot neglect this one important one, the careful selection of our acquaintances. And this doesn't mean that one must be a snob. Far from it. It only means that the successful man, the man who wishes to rise in life, should not spend his days in the company of illiterate companions who do not possess ambition of heart or the will to do the work of the world. It means that life is too short to hang around the loafing places with the driftwood of humanity, listening to their stories of failure, and drinking in with liquor some of their bitterness against those who have toiled and won the fruits of their toil. It means that we will not go out of our way to seek the friendship of men and women who are simply endeavoring to gain happiness in life without paying for it. It means that we will do all in our power to win friends who aspire nobly and by so doing inspire those with whom they come in contact. Such men are naturally clean of mind and body. We must remember always to live in a world of clear thought that will stimulate our ambitions. Dwelling in the dark corners of life and traveling with the debris of humanity will not arouse us to action and give us that swinging vigor of heart and mind so necessary to the accomplishment of great things. While we will ever lend the helping hand to those who need it, we will naturally associate with those who have been encouraged. We will not be dragged down by our associates. Until we meet the right kind we will hold aloof, and we will not be morose and gloomy because it happens that at this moment our acquaintanceship does not include these successes. When we have succeeded in doing something big they will come to us, and if we think big things we are likely to do them. It is all a matter of the will to do. Nothing succeeds like success, said some very wise man, and if there ever was a phrase that rang with truth, this does. It means that the thought of success, the courage that comes with success, leads to more and more success. It means that the thinker of these thoughts is living in a clean, wholesome atmosphere, along with those who are determined and in earnest. It means that they have caught the fervor of true life a healthy contagious fervor which permeates the blood swiftly once it gets a hold, and like electricity it vivifies and stirs the spirit with renewed energy day after day, year after year. Once it wins us it will stick with us. The success of those about us will shake our lethargic limbs and stimulate us to a desire to do as they do. We will be in a world of clean thought and action, and our lives will mirror their lives, our thoughts will be filled with wholesome things and with good health. We will win in spite of all obstacles. Cleanliness is the morale of the body and the mind. The man who is careful of his linen and who does not neglect his morning plunge is not apt to be gloomy and morose. We noticed him in the car or on the street in the morning. He comes striding along, fresh and full of the zest of living. His mind is clear and unclouded. His eyes are full of that vigorous light of conscientious desire to win and do so honestly. 
he has none of the hypocritical elements in his nature strong enough to rule him. There may be, and probably are, many weaknesses in his character. His very strength consists in his ability to crush them and make them his slaves. The man who has taken his morning plunge and dressed himself agreeable to comfort and grace has his battles of the day won in advance. He knows the value of keeping himself in trim. He does it for the sake of his own feelings. Our approval of his appearance goes without saying. If a man thinks well of himself in matters of appearance, his general deportment is likely to coincide. Such men never overdo. They are at ease with themselves, and thus impart ease to others who come in contact with them. They have, in other words, a distinction of their own, and their distinction is their power. They know that the highest moral law of nature is that of cleanliness, that filthiness should not be allowed to dominate any man's ethics or physical condition. They rule such things out of their lives. A vast magnetic force comes out of those friends of ours who are doing things and making the world sit up and take notice. The mere fact that we live near to them, know them, and associate with them is proof positive that we too shall go through life with clean minds and bodies. They would not tolerate us if we were to slip into shoddy ways. Nothing is revealed quicker to our intimates than the losing of ambition, the slipping into careless habits. We cannot conceal it from them. We fool only those who brush by. The loss of this self-respect has a terrible effect upon the system, and every tendency toward success is thereby stunted and weakened. We have fallen into unclean ways. It would not be long before we sink to the bottom, or else remain among the vast crowd who have neither the courage to fall nor the courage to rise. Nothing produces failure quicker than filthiness of mind and body. Those who are successful keep away from the very thought of such a condition. They live as much as possible in the open. They take morning and evening exercises. They read good books, attend good plays, and are continually in touch with the finer developments of thought and art in the world. Their faces are open and full of sunlight. They are determined that life will not beat them in a game that only requires sureness of aim and the ability to take advantage of the thousand and one opportunities that surround them on every side. Cleanliness stands paramount in its importance to success. Perhaps no other one thing has so vital a hold upon the individual who succeeds. The general of an army first looks to the morale of his troops. He knows that with clean minds and bodies his soldiers are capable of doing big things. The battleship, that efficient and highly developed instrument of war, is so immaculate that one could eat his meals on its very decks. Its officers are wholesome, athletic fellows. Its crew consists of hardy men who live sanely and vigorously and who have plenty to occupy their minds. And if cleanliness is fundamental in their case, why not in our own? When we come to analyze ourselves, we find that we are like a great institution of some kind. Here is the brain, the heart, the lungs, the stomach, the nerves, and the muscles. Each department acts separately and yet is connected absolutely with all the others. The entire system is under one supreme department. 
the mind. Now, if this ruling department is kept clean and full, of kindly, beautiful thoughts, does it not seem natural that the rest will follow its lead, being so completely in its power? We realize this, and the mere realization is something done towards the accomplishment of an ideal life in a world of cleanliness and beauty. System is one of the finest tools in existence with which to build one's life into something worthwhile. The body must be run on a system as well as the mind. The stomach must not be overloaded with unnecessary food. The lungs must not be filled with impure air. The nerves must not be worn threadbare in riotous and ridiculous living. The muscles must be kept in trim with consistent exercise of the proper sort. We must recognize the wants, the needs of the physical system, and see that they are supplied. Roosevelt, perhaps more than any other living man today, has given vitality to the supreme necessity of cleanliness of mind and body. He has, by reason of his great prominence, been able to emphasize these two vital essentials. He called a spade a spade, and his message went far. For those who knew the value of his words came nods of approval. Others took heed. From boyhood he has systematized his life, taking the exercise needed, filling his mind with the learning of the world, winning when others would have failed, profiting by experience allotted to him through fate's kindly offices and association with the healthy, true men. What has been the result? He has risen to the very pinnacle of human endeavor. No honors await him. He has lived consistently and cleanly, and he can look any man in the eye and say honestly, I have lived as I have believed. It is not necessary to become president in order to live sanely, to gain from circumstances the fruits that are ours for the asking and which have fallen into Roosevelt's hands with such profusion. We cannot all become presidents, but we can all emulate a shining example of mental and bodily morale. Just as we plunge into the cold water in the early morning, so should we regularly during the day plunge into the society of those whose splendid enthusiasm is helping to make the world a better place to live in. They are the kind who go into the struggle with heads high and with clean hearts. Their eyes see beyond the daily toil of life. They are in touch with the big things, and it is up to us to keep step with them. They want us, and they will give us the glad hand. All they want to know is whether our courage is equal to our ambitions, and whether our house of life is kept in good order. And so we journey along together in all good nature, not forgetting to laugh as we live. End of chapter 8 Chapter 9 Consideration for Others Consideration for others is man's noblest attitude toward his fellow man. For every seed of human kindness he plants, a flower blooms in the garden of his own heart. In him who gives in such a way there is no hypocritical feeling of charity bestowed. His very act disarms the thought. It is as natural for an honorable man to show consideration to others as it is for him to eat and sleep. Acts of kindness are the outward manifestations of gentle breeding, a refinement of character in the highest sense of the word. What would we do in this world without the helping hand, the friendly word of cheer, 
the thought that others shared our losses and cheered our victories. If consideration for our feelings and thoughts did not exist on this earth, we would never know the depths of the love of our friends. There would be no such thing as an earthly reward of merit. We know that no matter what happens to us in the battle of life, there will be someone to cheer us on our way. We may be strong and thoroughly able to rely upon ourselves, but there comes a time when we need friendship and sympathy. Society would crumble into dust without these influences. The family circle would degenerate into a hollow mockery if consideration each for the other was absent. It sweetens and makes wholesome what otherwise might only be an existence of monotonous toil. Consideration for others is the milk of human kindness. For what we do for others our recompense is in the act itself. We should claim no other reward. Observation brings to view that they who give in real charity cloak their acts from the eyes of all save the recipient. Givers of this type rise to the supreme heights of greatness. It is a part of their wisdom to know what is best to be done, and they go about it as a pleasure as well as a duty. Consideration for others pays big dividends. It is a virtue that makes for strong friendships and true affections. Those who possess it have a hard time hiding their light under a bushel. In teaching fortitude to others they partake of the same knowledge. In the hours of their own affliction they retain their courage and keep their minds unsoured. They are the, sure enough, good fellows of light, and their presence is the signal for instantaneous good cheer. We all know them by their gentle knock at the door. In a thousand ways they impress themselves upon our lives, have entered into our counsels, have given us the right advice at the right time, and when the sad day comes along their strong shoulders are there for us to lean upon. Consideration for others is apt to be an inherent quality, but like everything else it can be accentuated or modified according to our own determination. It is a growth that should be inculcated early in the lives of children, the earlier the better. A child's most impressionable age is said to be between its fourth and fifth years. Then is the time to teach it the little niceties of life, the closing of a door softly, tiptoeing quietly that mother may not be awakened from her nap, tidiness, cleanliness, good morals, all of which are to become vital factors in a life of consideration for others. A great many of us have the desire to be of service to others, but timidity holds us back. Say, for instance, one might see a person in great distress and because of diffidence withhold the proffered hand. Someone we've known who comes to the point of penury but has too much pride to ask assistance, we pass by, fearful that we might offend. How many times has this happened to us? Who knows but the best friend we have at this very moment would give us anything in the world if his pride would let him bridge that distance between us. Nevertheless, the desire to do the right thing was in itself helpful. The thought of doing something for someone was the correct impulse and should have been carried into action. Early in life we should have started our foundation for doing things in the cause of others. 
putting off the time when we shall begin to obey our higher impulses toward helpfulness to our fellows is but a reaction in our own characters which dulls determination. We want to do it, but we won't. As time goes on, we just don't. That's all. Our good intentions have gone to pave the bottomless pits containing our unfulfilled heart promptings. We meant well, but we failed to act. We didn't have the courage. Our failures spread a gloom before us. We lost our chances for a happy life. The man with the ability to laugh has little diffidence about these matters. Having confidence in himself and being happy and alert, he goes to the friend in need with courage and the kind of help that helps. If he doesn't do it directly, he finds a way to reach him through mutual funds. He does not go about parading his kindness, either. He has gained a sincere and beautiful pleasure out of aiding an old friend, and he can go on his way rejoicing that life is worth living when he has lived up to its higher ideals. Consideration for others does not necessarily involve only the big things. It is the sum and total of numberless acts and thoughts that make for friendship and kindliness. People who are thoughtful surely brighten the world. They are ever ready to do some little thing at the correct moment, and after a time we begin to realize how much their presence means to us. We may not notice them the first time, or the third, or the fifth, but after a while we become conscious of their persistence and we esteem them accordingly. Such men are the products of clean, straightforward lives. They are never too busy to exchange a pleasant word. They do not flame into anger on a pretext. Their code of existence is well-ordered and filled to the brim with lots to do and lots to think about. The old saying, if you want anything, go to a busy man, applies to them in this regard. The busier men are, the more time they seem to have for kindliness. Another word for consideration is service. Nothing brings a greater self-reward than a service done in an hour of need or a favor granted during a day's grind. The generous man who climbs to the top of the ladder helps many others on their way. The more he does for someone else, the more he does for himself. The stronger he becomes, the greater his influence in his community. Doing things for others may not bring in bankable dividends, but it does bring in happiness. Such actions scorn a higher reward. We have only to try out the plan to learn the truth for ourselves. A good place is to begin at home, then the office, or wherever life leads us. And in doing these things we will laugh as we go along. We will laugh and get the most out of living. Our little day-by-day -day kindnesses, when added together, constitute in time a huge asset on the right side of our ledger of life. We should start the day with something that helps another get through his day, even if it isn't any more than a smile and a wave of the hand, and he will remember us for it. It is said that advice is cheap, and for that reason is given freely. But the proper kind of advice is about as rare as the proverbial hen's tooth. In order to give real advice we must understand the man who asks for it. If what we say to him is to become of value, we must see to it that his mind is put in proper shape to receive advice. 
be sure that he laughs, or smiles at least, before we seriously take up his case. And when we have done our stunt in the way of advice, let's send him away with a fine good humor. A friendly pat on the back as he goes out our doorway may mean a bracer to his determination. You'll put it over, we shout after him, and thus we have been of real help. He needed sympathy and courage. He needed a cheerful spirit, so came to us, and we didn't let him go away until we gave him all these. Bully for us. Consideration for others does not admit of ostentation and hypocrisy. We never allow our left hand to know what our right hand does in charity, nor do we boast of our helpful attitude toward our fellow men. It is well to make a point of this fact. In this world are many ne'er-do-wells who fail to profit by advice and thereby become professional in the seeking of favors. Consideration owes them nothing, and to withstand their persistent appeals would in time dull our natural tendencies toward helping others. The world helps those who help themselves. We have little admiration for the man who is forever whining. Society has no work for such people as these. When we have exhausted every means of helping such a man, we must, in self-defense, pass him up before he contaminates our sense of justice. We must keep our visions clear. Consideration for others is a prime refinement of character. To be able to use it in our daily lives becomes one of our great consolations. Sympathy begets affection and kindly deeds. In a relative sense, it binds together the properties which go to make the soul within us. Browbeating, scolding, irascibility, and the like are microbes which react against the milk of human kindness, to which, if we succumb, leaves us stranded and alone amid a world of friendliness and good fellowship. End of chapter 9 Chapter 10 Keeping Ourselves Democratic Big words and pomposity never were designed for the highest types of men. Our great national figures have almost without exception had one quality which was a keynote to their ultimate success. This was their simplicity. Next was their accessibility. There are numberless big-hearted and big-brained individuals in the world whose duties are so manifold that in order to accomplish what has been placed in their hands they must be saved from interruption, but the truly great individual is never hidden away entirely from his fellow man. He never becomes such a slave to detail that he does not find time to fraternize with ordinary mortals. We do not find him concealed behind impenetrable barriers, guarded and pampered by courtiers like unto a king on his throne, or tucked away in some dark office. He wants to know everybody worthwhile, and everybody worthwhile is welcomed by him. He does not affect to know so much that he cannot be told something new. He is not the sort to refuse to see us at any reasonable time. We should not confound greatness, however, with notoriety. A man who by virtue of large publicity has compelled public notice isn't necessarily a great man, no matter how hard he may strive to make himself appear so. Especially is this true of the man who does not make a personal success corresponding to his advertised fame. In time he may have the earmarks of notability, but, as Lincoln said, you can't fool all of the people all of the time. 
it is to be noted with satisfaction that the big captains of industry keep themselves free from petty details. I surrounded myself with clever men, said Andrew Carnegie in accounting for his success, and by the same token the men who took over his great affairs and gave them larger scope and power surrounded themselves with still other clever men, thus reserving their judgment and thought for the higher policies of their institution. They kept themselves in readiness for consultation, and, having men of initiative and self-reliance underneath them, they find time to take in hand other affairs than those of the tremendous businesses they manage. Men of this type often become prominent in public affairs and develop into highly important citizens. The bigger the man, the less he encumbers himself with matters which can be delegated to others. His desk is clear of all litter and minutiae, likewise his mind. Such men keep their physiques and mentalities in fine working order and are not to be goaded into ill temper. A refinement of mind is supremely essential to the man who desires to climb to the very top of the ladder. He cannot afford to close his brain to outside information. He is forced to keep it open in order to let in continuous currents of new thought. He does not want his visage to cream and mantle as a standing pond, as Shakespeare aptly puts it. Therefore, the windows of his thinking department are kept open for refreshing draughts from the outside. He reasons that always there are new guests, new faces, new things to talk about at the banquet board of life. And here is the point. If men who carry on the great industries of the world find a way to keep themselves democratic, surely men of less importance should be able to do the same? The snob is about as offensive a person as could be described. He is usually a hypocrite, or an ignoramus, sometimes both. His pomposity is naturally repellent. We easily become accustomed to dodging such characters. The detriment is theirs, not ours. They are left by the wayside and, sooner or later, wake up to the fact that they stand alone in the world. The world loves the man with an open mind. This is the usual spirit of the progressive citizen. He wants to know, and by reason of his accessibility knowledge is brought to him. No one cares to take up the task of informing the egotist who already knows it all. Such is his inherent cussedness that we would rather let him warp in the oven of his own half-baked knowledge. Life is too short to waste our time in educating him. How can I see Mr. So-and-so? says one man to another. Don't try, is the answer. He's not worth seeing. You can't tell him anything. And this sort of a chap misses the big opportunities just because he chooses to build up a reputation for being exclusive. He digs himself a hole and crawls into it and pulls the hole in after him. We can safely imagine him treating the members of his family as though they were servants and his employees as though they were slaves. He may succeed in small things, but in the big game of life we may write him down as a failure. If we have a big idea, we take it to a big man, the man of vision. Anything less is to putter around aimlessly. The bigger he is, the more democratic. He will not look for imperfections in our personal makeup when we show him the new process we have discovered. To be democratic is a triumph of the soul tending to bring us in close touch with the throbbing heart of humanity. 
there is no isolation for those of unaffected charm and manner, no barrier in the way of friendship worth having. It is our lack of judgment if we hide ourselves so that we cannot be approached. No matter how high we rise, for the sake of our own brains we must allow men of ideas to get to us. We must not allow our minds to become stagnant. If we fail to get into daily contact with other people, we soon grow dull and uninteresting even to ourselves. Great men may have no time to fritter away, but they have plenty of leisure for men worthwhile, the pushers and the thinkers. A democratic spirit does not come to the selfish man. He is absorbed in himself and is quite a hopeless case. He is a natural-born fault-finder and grouchy by nature. For him life holds no joy save the one in sight. Taking the big look at the man of this type, we can only be sorry for him because of his lack of early training. He started off on the wrong foot and thereafter drifted along. Seldom do we overcome the habits with which we arrive at man's estate. Those who do are entitled to a right-hand seat among the chosen. Being democratic is another phrase for being human and kind. It means that we ought to be able to see behind every face and find the truth of that individual's existence. It means that life is largely a matter of how we look at it, and being human is one way to get the proper slant at things. The human mind has great adaptive power and can be molded into a thousand ways of thinking. The intelligent man, the man who has taken stock of himself, is able to smile and extend a hearty hand-clasp whenever he feels tip-top or not. He doesn't have to look glum simply because the world hasn't thrown itself at his feet. He has only to persevere, and success will come eventually. We must correct our failings as we go along, or we will slip down into the rut and stay there. It is a simple matter to be good-natured and full of the zest of life if we poise ourselves right keep ourselves democratic. It is this great soul quality which brings us true friends and boosts us into the fulfillment of our ambitions. Then we may truly laugh and live. End of chapter 10. Recording by Tom Weiss, tomsaudiobooks.com.